Our reading this morning is a poem, Rite of Passage, by Sharon Olds. As the guests arrive at our son's party, they gather in the living room, short men, men in first grade with smooth jaws and chins. Hands in pockets, they stand around, jostling, jockeying for position, small fights breaking out and calming. One says to another, how old are you? Six. I'm seven. (laughs) So? They eye each other, seeing themselves tiny in the other's pupils. They clear their throats a lot. A room of small bankers. (laughs) They fold their arms and frown. I could beat you up, a seven. (laughs) I could beat you up, a seven says to a six. The midnight cake, round and heavy as a turret, behind them on the table. My son, freckles like specks of nutmeg on his cheeks, chest narrow as the balsa keel of a model boat, long hands, cool and thin as the day they guided him out of me, speaks up as a host for the sake of the group. We could easily kill a two-year-old. We could easily kill a two-year-old, he says in his clear voice. The other men agree. They clear their throats like generals. They relax and get down to playing war, celebrating my son's life. The poet is Sharon Olds, the mother of the birthday boy. What is going on in this mother's mind? What am I to make of this, she seems to be asking. Where does it go from here? How will this end? The question of the day is, how do we honor our mothers? Your mother, my mother. Our mothers now living, our mothers who've died but live in us, how do we honor the one who gave us life? This could be our birth mother, But not in all cases. It could be our adoptive mother. Or it could be another who mothered us. It could be another life-giving person who's been essential to us. It could be Mother Earth who mothers us all. How do I honor my mother? My birth mother lives in Illinois in a nursing home now these past three months. And soon she'll move to a memory care wing. Mother's Day means very little to her now. How do I honor her on Mother's Day beyond sending lotions for her hands and her feet and sending others to hug her for me? I know one way to honor her. I honor her by remembering how much she loves people and delights in them. My mom taught grade school for years, and from those years she gained a practice that has served her well. It was this. When she encountered adults in her daily life who were difficult or challenging for any reason, she would let her vision go soft, and by some trick she would look through the hardness or their frown or their fatigue and imagine the person as they looked in their kindergarten group photo, 
standing lined up with the other five-year-olds, small and wide-eyed and vulnerable. She'd call up this image and then proceed from there, my mother. I believe I honor my mother whenever I can remember somehow to borrow her practice and see others that way, see them not only as they are now, but as they were and as they someday will be, perhaps like my mother, frail, vulnerable again, and cared for by others. How can we best honor our mothers? Julia Ward Howe insisted that a world at peace is the way to honor our mothers. Julia was mother of four daughters and two sons. She wrote the words to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. She saw the Civil War up close. She knew how war shattered bodies and minds and communities, brothers killing brothers. From 1861 to 1865, she saw too much violence and disease and economic ruin. Our death toll in that war on home soil was 620,000. By 1865, Julia, like so many others, was sick of war. So when the Franco-Prussian War broke out in 1870, she said, oh no, here we go again. And she lamented, as she said, the cruel and unnecessary character of the contest, a return to barbarism, the issue having been one which might easily have been settled without bloodshed. That's when she rose up to deliver the Mother's Day proclamation and said, disarm, disarm, the sword of murder is not the balance of justice. Let's meet and talk, mothers of the world. Let's conspire for peace, for the great and general interest of justice and peace. Julia Ward Howe was herself inspired by another woman, Anna Jarvis of West Virginia, who during the Civil War started what she called Mother's Work Days, where women got together to work for better sanitary conditions for both sides. And this Anna Jarvis, after the war ended, worked to reconcile Union and Confederate neighbors in her area. Later, Anna Jarvis' daughter, also named Anna Jarvis, Anna Jarvis the Younger, took up her mother's work for peace and justice, and it was she who pushed for a Memorial Day for Women till President Woodrow Wilson in 1914, declared the first National Mother's Day, but here's the irony. Mother's Day went commercial so fast that Anna Jarvis was appalled. Almost immediately, Mother's Day became a time to tell our mothers we love them and buy them pretty things, flowers and cards. Anna Jarvis was made extremely unhappy by this, and in so many words, she said, no, delete, halt, I take it back, This is not what I meant at all, buying ready-made messages of love and making florists rich. No, no, no. This is an affront, she said, to the spirit of Mother's Day. In her later years, Anna Jarvis spent all her time and money opposing the holiday she'd worked to create. In 1948, shortly before she died, she went out again to protest the commercialization of Mother's Day, and she was arrested for disturbing the peace disturbing the peace. Anna learned what many have learned through history. It's easier to talk about love than to create justice. 
it's more pleasant to talk about love than to remember how bad war can be and put our full human weight against it. Civil War photographer Matthew Brady took over 10,000 photos documenting the war, many of them an agony to behold. If you've seen them, you know what I mean. There are some in the Smithsonian, and of course in Ken Burns' great documentary. After the war, no one wanted the photos. The government didn't want to buy them. No one wanted to remember what we did to each other. No one wanted to see the truth of the starved bodies and the dead strewn across fields, the sick lying in hospitals, and the heaps of amputated legs and arms. Today we have maybe 10% of Brady's photographs. The others disappeared. And after the war, many of his glass photographic plates were bought by greenhouses and used as window panes. The details of the war faded in the sun. The light streamed through and nourished the greenhouse flowers that children bought to honor their mothers. Our Civil War ended officially in 1865, but was it over? In 1865, uh, the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery was ratified. It's also the year the Ku Klux Klan was formed and white supremacy reigned for so long, for another century. Is the Civil War over? I was just pondering this question a few days ago when I came out of a hardware store over by Lake Nokomis and I caught a snippet, a tiny snippet, of a conversation between an African-American man sitting in a parked car and a Caucasian man in a baseball cap who was standing beside the car. They were laughing like neighbors who had crossed paths and they were shooting the breeze. And all I heard as I passed was the white man saying to the black man, why should I listen to a Yankee like you? <laughs> 2010, by the lake in Minnesota. Is the war ever over, or the warring spirit? Sharon Olds, as the guests arrive at our son's party, they gather in the living room, hands in pockets, stand around jockeying for place, small fights breaking out and calming. One says to another, how old are you? Six. I'm seven. So? They eye each other. They fold their arms and frown. I could beat you up, a seven says to a six. My son freckles like specks of nutmeg on his cheeks for the sake of the group speaks up as host. We could easily kill a two-year-old, he says in his clear voice. The others agree. They relax and get down to playing more, celebrating my son's life. Boys already at war, children celebrating life by making war. It brings to mind a story told by Tom Junode about Fred Rogers. Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, most of us know who he is. He was a Presbyterian minister and the host and creator for some 40 years of a public television show for very young children called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He died in 2003 at age 74. Just a couple years before he died, writer Tom Junod followed Rogers everywhere, to his home, to his studio, uh, to his meals, to the morning swim, and for a week or two, he took notes, and then he wrote a feature essay for Esquire magazine called, Can You Say Hero? This part of the essay takes place when Fred Rogers is taping his show in New York City at Penn Station. Tom writes, Once upon a time, a little boy with a big sword went into battle against Mr. Rogers. 
Or maybe, if the truth be told, Mr. Rogers went into battle, for Mr. Rogers didn't like the big sword. It was one of those swords that really isn't a sword at all. It was a big plastic contraption with lights and sound effects, and it was the kind of sword used in defense of the universe by the heroes of the television shows that the little boy liked to watch. The little boy with the big sword didn't know who Mr. Rogers was, and so when Mr. Rogers knelt down in front of him, the little boy with the big sword looked past him and through him, and when Mr. Rogers said, Oh my, that's a big sword you have. The boy didn't answer, and finally his mother got embarrassed and said, Oh, come on, honey, that's Mr. Rogers, and felt his head for fever. (laughs) Of course, she knew who Mr. Rogers was because she had grown up with him, and she knew that he was good for her son. And so now, with her little boy zombie-eyed under his blonde bangs, she apologized, saying to Mr. Rogers that she knew he was in a rush, she knew he was here in Penn Station taping his program, and that her son usually wasn't like this, he was probably just tired. Except that Mr. Rogers wasn't going anywhere. Yes, sure, he was taping, and right there in Penn Station in New York City were rings of other children wiggling in wait for him, but right now his patient gray eyes were fixed on the little boy with the big sword. And so he stayed there on one knee until the little boy's eyes finally focused on him. And the boy said, it's not a sword, it's a death ray. And so now, encouraged, Mommy said, do you want to give Mr. Rogers a hug, honey? But the boy was shaking his head no, and Mr. Rogers was sneaking his face past the big sword and the armor of the little boy's eyes and whispering something in his ear, something that, while not changing the boy's mind about the hug, made him look at Mr. Rogers in a new way, with the eyes of a child at last, and nod his head yes. We were heading back, this is the author, Tom, we were heading back to Mr. Rogers' apartment in a taxi when I asked him what he had said. And he said, oh, I just knew then whenever you see a little boy carrying something like that, it means that he wants to show people that he's strong on the outside. I just wanted to let him know that he was strong on the inside, too. So that's what I said. I said, do you know that you're strong on the inside, too? Maybe it was something he needed to hear. Do you know that you're strong on the inside, too? Tom Juno tells us why Mr. Rogers was taping his show at Penn Station, too. Tom writes, on December 1st, 1997, a boy told his friends to watch out. He was going to do something really big. And the next day at school, he took his gun and his ammo and his earplugs, and he shot eight classmates who had clustered for prayer meeting, and three of them died. The shootings took place in West Paducah, Kentucky, and when Mr. Rogers heard about them, he said... Wouldn't the world be a different place if that boy had said, I'm going to do something really little tomorrow. And he decided to dedicate a week of the neighborhood show to the theme, Little and Big. He wanted to show the children how what starts out little can sometimes become big and beautiful, and so they could devote themselves to little dreams without feeling bad about them. But how could Mr. Rogers show little becoming big and vice versa? That was the challenge. What Fred Rogers did was he decided to go to New York City and visit the famous architect, Maya Lin. 
He knew that architects are people who create very big things from little designs they draw on pieces of paper. Part of Mr. Rogers' show was taped in Maya Lynn's studio where he visited with her and where he looked at her little drawings, which were the plans for the huge fancy clock that is now on the ceiling of Penn Station in New York City. And part of the show was taped in Penn Station with Mr. Rogers bending back, mouth open in amazement, looking at the big clock that told the people of New York what time it was. Fred Rogers once said, the question is not what can we sell our children or even what can we give them. It is, who are they? Who are they? Are they consumers? Then let's sell them things. Are they products? Bill Doherty, who used to be a member here, author of Take Back Your Kids, says, this view is at the root of our tendency to overschedule our children. We know so much now, he says, about what our children need for development at every stage, what, that we see children as bundles of potentials, and it's up to us to see that all the potentials have a chance to develop. So we try to provide every possible opportunity, and we feel guilty if we don't. Bill calls this parenting as product development. <laughs> the question is not what can we sell children or even what can we give them. It is, who are they? And Fred Rogers' answers are something like this. They are creators, able to turn small dreams and little acts into large, beautiful realities. They are beings who have access to a wellspring of energy inside themselves, call it love, that makes them strong on the inside. And they are kin, K-I-N. They and we are in this together. Adults and children may not be equals when it comes to skills and years of experience, but they are always equals in spirit. We are fellow pilgrims on this planet, and it's through little gestures of connections repeated every day that we come to know this. Dr. James Garbarino of Loyola University, Chicago, has spent 35 years studying violence and its impact on our children and youth. In his book, Lost Boys... He asks, why do our sons turn violent and how can we save them? He interviewed hundreds of young men in prisons and juvenile detention facilities. Most of their childhoods were stories of appalling abuse and negligence. Garbarino asks, in the face of this, in the face of this, why do some boys' souls survive while others are lost or flee? He asks, when a life can be turned around, what makes that possible? And then he says, social science gives us three factors that help. One is temper temperament, the kind of constitution a child is born with. Another factor is resilience, the ability to bounce back. A third factor is the presence of human warmth in the child's life. And then Garbarino names a fourth factor, what he calls the fourth force, this one he learned not from social science, but from getting to know the violent or once violent boys. The fourth factor, he says, seems to be crucial if a boy is to find his way out of hell. He describes the factor as a single thread of light that feeds the spirit. Garbarino says the single thread of light can be an unexplainable moment of grace. It can be 
a discovered talent, but most often it's an encounter with a person who sees the divine spark in the child and fuels it and so connects the child to a meaning and a purpose. Writer Tom Junod went everywhere with Fred Rogers for days and they became friends. Tom learned that the 70-year-old Mr. Rogers was a, a great family man, a beloved co-worker, a minister with a lifelong calling, a guy who got up at 5.30 every morning to study, swim, pray for the children who asked for his prayers, weep when he read a letter from a mother who honored her dying child's request that a photo of Mr. Rogers be placed in his casket, and to play with an autistic child that was brought all the way from Boise, Idaho to meet him. Tom found that Anywhere Fred went in public, adults as well as children lined up for hugs. Some of the adults saying, you were the father I never had, or some other words that meant, you were my thread of light. Tom discovered that even at 70, Fred Rogers was a kind of Don Quixote going into battle on behalf of children and standing against the destructive forces of the very media he's been using all these years to publish his message of grace insisting that life is not naturally fragmented, showing that process processes of life have an organic shape with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and we need to see them whole, that we dare not lose ourselves to the bewildering blitz of media. We dare not lose ourselves, as Tom Junod says, to the 24-hour-a-day pie fight, to the dizzying cut and disorienting edit, to the message of fragmentation, to the flicker and pulse and constant hive drone of the electroculture. We must do all we can to protect two sacred things, childhood and silence. In his essay, Tom Junod says we're in danger of losing this battle, but he says that Fred Rogers fights on and never gives up. Early in 1999, when television gave Fred Rogers its highest honor, Fred responded by telling television, gently of course, just to be quiet for once. <laughs> Tom writes, Fred went on stage to accept Emmy's Lifetime Achievement Award. And there in front of all the soap opera stars and talk show sincerotrons, in front of all the jutting man-tanned jaws and jutting saltwater bosoms, he made his small bow and said to the microphone, all of us have special ones who, has loved, who have loved us into being. Would you take along with me just 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are? 10 seconds of silence. Then he lifted his wrist, looked at the audience, looked at his watch and said softly, I'll watch the time. There was at first a small whoop from the crowd, a giddy, strangled hiccup of laughter as people realized that he wasn't kidding, that Mr. Rogers was not some convenient eunuch, but rather a man, an authority figure who actually expected them to do what he asked, and so they did. One second, two seconds, three seconds, and now the jaws clenched and the bosoms heaved and the mascara ran and the tears fell upon the beglittered gathering like rain leaking down a crystal chandelier. And Mr. Rogers finally looked up from his watch 
and said, May God be with you to all his vanquished children. It might be good if we imitated the people in that audience and for a moment we set down whatever important things and thoughts we've been carrying. And in this moment, let it dawn on us that we are the ones who need the message of the soft-spoken man. We are the overscheduled children who lead fragmented lives. We are the ones who are tired of being consumers or products or who are being who are tired of being told who we are. Together we could take 10 seconds of silence and recall someone who has mothered or fathered or befriended or loved us into being, one who has been our thread of light. So let's do that now and I'll watch the time. May God be with us. It's said that Jesus said, unless you turn and become as children, you cannot enter the realm of God. I don't believe that saying is telling us to go back in time or become irresponsible or naive. I believe it's asking us to look into our hearts and read the truth that is surely written there. The truth that we were once part of the mingled vastness of the universe and we will be again. And while we're here between one vastness and the other, we are like children, dependent on the bounty of the earth and the kindness of others, wearing on the outside these changing, vulnerable bodies and wearing on the inside a mysterious strength that can't be bought or sold. Will you pray with me? Spirit of life and love, may we be kin in spirit and deed to one another and creators of peace on earth. In this way, may we honor our true mothers. Amen. <laughs>